millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Ocean Protect podcast. Talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect. Committed to change. Who is Harry Sedler? <laughs> oh, well, good question. I'm a writer. I used to write fiction, and now I've also started to writing non-fiction, which I think I'm a lot better at, just quietly. I uh, sort of specialise in writing about the environment and particularly about animals and how actions impact them and vice versa. So I'm, I'm actually uh, very familiar with one of your books, Harry. So I, I, I read your Eastern Curlew book maybe a year ago, but... Uh, but, mate, oh, yeah. I, I, I don't know about the <laughs> 10 stories about relationships. <laughs> this is your first book, I think. Yeah, well, that, was, that, was, that, was, that was in the old fiction writing days so it's been take a while to find to find your, your voice as they say oh mate my um lovely partner Catherine Mahoney is um currently taking a big leap of faith and uh quit a day job to, to write a book, so I live with a writer. So whilst <laughs> okay. I haven't read well. any of your books, I live with a writer and sort of understand what your dog and your cat are going through. <laughs> it's amazing Jeremy hasn't come across this book because he's always in the relationship section of the uh, bookshop, aren't you, Jeremy? <laughs> Crying. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, you, you'd, you'd have to... Um he has to come around and start rummaging around the, the boxes in, in my shed to find any copies of that book. <laughs> uh, look, you've written this... To be honest, really uh, incredible book called The Eastern Curlew, and I read it probably a year ago. And to be honest, I consider myself a, a bit of a big deal when it comes to endurance activities, but my goodness, <laughs> I am like a couch potato relative to The Eastern Curlew. But tell me, I guess before we get too much in the detail about, I guess, their feats of endurance. Why The Eastern Curlew? Why do yeah. you write a, a book about <laughs> this one bird? <laughs> the Eastern Curlew is it's a bird that's always fascinated me since I'd got into bird watching when I was about 12 years old. And I mean, who can really explain why 12-year-olds get fascinated by the things that they do? <laughs> really I wasn't dumb. watching birds, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I remember turning the, the pages of my, of my field guide, seeing this tall, imposing bird with this preposterously long curved build that's kind of looming over all the other birds on, on the page. Then was the Eastern Curlew. And then in 2014, at the start of 2014, I was on a guided birdwatching tour to a place called the Mud Islands in um, Port Phillip Bay. So I went there on a guided tour to see the Mud Islands, and we saw lots of different species. And then as we were returning on the boat into Queenscliff Harbour, five minutes out from the end of, end of the trip, suddenly on the on the beach from just north of Queenscliff Harbour, we saw four eastern curlews, and they 
sort of saw us and they called out an alarm and they sort of flew off and it was the first time I'd ever actually seen this bird that had been sort of fixated in the back of my mind for you know, the last 20 years or so. The first time I'd actually seen them in real life and I just kind of reawakened this fascination with them. And when you see a bird yeah. that you haven't seen, like I, I know, like I think bird watchers are called twitches. Is that right, Harry? And when, when you, um, it's, it's sort of like yeah, a well, well, twitches are the are the people who, when some rare vagrant bird sort of blows in on a storm up the coast of you know on, on, on the sort of far southwest coast or or anywhere really, the twitches drop everything and fly over there and rush out to see it and to tick it off their list. Um, so. Twitches are the really hyper kind of intensive <laughs> so gung ho ones. They're, they're, they're the they're ones the who get up at bird three. watchers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're, 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 they're the ones who get up at three o'clock in the morning to drive to the other side of the state to to see some rare small brown bird or something like that. So there's um there's a certain threshold um, from bird watching <laughs> twitches like that I'm not yet grand, dead across. <laughs> Okay, so so you're you're not a twitcher. You're just a, the bird average watcher. Aussie bird watcher. Yeah. Well, That's right. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mate. Not calling you average. Just yeah, right in the middle. No, I, I'm I, happy to be average. I don't know any uh, anyone that goes on bird watching tours to mudflats. <laughs> I'll be honest with you. So, <laughs> well, yeah, well, you're, you're only bird. Well, actually, no, no, no. I've, I no, no. This is a true story. I've been over in Botswana and in the Okavango Delta, and I went out bird. So I went out on safari with two people from the United Kingdom called Myrtle and Paul. They own a BMW dealership, motorbike dealership. <laughs> they, I actually spent a couple of days with them because I was by myself, and they're the only people that liked me. <laughs> but they're the only other two bird watchers I've met and Harry tonight. So <laughs> I feel like I've experienced. Yeah. <laughs> so Harry, you've. You basically seen these birds, right? Was it a there and then moment you went, right, I'm going to write a book about it? Or? The origin of the book was actually, I became uh, interested in this extraordinary long distance migration of these birds, too. So, um, so we're not familiar. They, Although they spend six months of the year in, in Australia, kind of scattered around the coast. So they will have just arrived about a month ago and they'll be here till about, about March or April. Um, so from about, from about September through to about March. They're in Australia. Their breeding grounds are actually up in the Arctic and subarctic, so up in sort of Siberia and Alaska, places like that. And so to get from point A to point B, obviously, they've got to fly a long, long way. And they pass through a lot of countries to do that. So I kind of got interested in how these birds might have imprinted themselves on the cultures of the countries that they pass through because it's a very culturally diverse migration route. So that, that was the starting point of the, of the book. And then you wanted to basically go started. on a roadie with the birds. That's, that's all I mean. yeah, exactly. I want to do a big roadie. So, so that was the starting point. Was your interest in in in, in the difference and the bird had on the different cultures and the impact, the cultural impacts. That's really cool, mm. man. Yeah, I, yeah. And then, and then the more that I that I researched and found out about the birds, which is their lifestyle, and also the various threats that they face, the more interesting and the more complex the story became and the more it had to say about you know, about the sort of the realities of the of the world that we've built today, you know, the sort of the, the society and civilization we've built today and kind of social economic system and how that impacts on life and whether it's even compatible with life to be honest. So yeah. it all became it all became a sort of big spiralling thing with a lot of issues that fortunately had a had a very Good editor to make it all into a seamless whole. Hopefully, so you you say they obviously spend about six months of the year in Australia, 
And they yep. obviously fly come March, I think, is it, uh, to the north, essentially around Siberia. Is that what you referred to? Yeah, that's right. So basically the takeoff from Siberia, can we just yep. run, run us through, you know, where they go, what they do, how high they go, you know, how long they're in the air for? Give us uh, the 101. First thing they do when they get ready to migrate is they fly vertically about two or three thousand meters um, and actually get the jet stream behind them. So that wow. gives them a good kick along. Yeah, well, they, they, um, they must have a good feed before they start. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, Harry. What? Talk about the night before. What do they do? They go yeah, out so, and have a party. Um, <laughs> yeah, so they actually they actually spend weeks and weeks before they migrate just feeding any available opportunity. They're incredibly well adapted to this long distance migration. So. They actually fly for days on end without without landing, and and they're flapping the whole way. So we know that they're not gliding or soaring birds; they're just wow. flapping birds. So they flap wow. for literally days on end, um, and obviously that's incredibly energy intensive. So in so before they migrate, they'll actually be they'll actually put on eighty percent of their own body weight again in fat, wow. which is the fuel for the migration. So you can see between birds that are just about to leave on their migration and birds that have just returned from migration think there's a huge fluctuation in wow. the weight and just the physique of the bird. So, I, re- um, I reckon Trent Grimsey, one of our previous uh, <laughs> guests on our podcast, mate, you know, McDonald's, mate, <laughs> you listening? <laughs> there's a very busy drive through um, in Siberia for Maccas. Yeah, so, so, when you, <laughs> so when you see them when they're ready to migrate, um, they look you know, almost obese. They look almost like you know, balloons that are about to burst. <laughs> and you think, how can that bird possibly get off the ground? Not only do they put on 80% of their own body weight in fat, the internal organ systems that they won't be using while they're flying, so their reproductive system, which they won't need, digestive system, which they won't need while they're flying, um, excretory system, all these kind of things, they will shrink up to almost nothing wow. to, just to save a few save grams in weight. Oh, weight. Um, it's weight. And then, and then when, they, when they land in the breeding grounds, these all grow back. <laughs> Um, wow. The birds, the birds <laughs> also are undergoing a molt, which is quite an energy-intensive thing. So they're they're replacing all their feathers. They have breeding and non-breeding plumage. Um, they look very very colourful um, in their breeding plumage. So in their non-breeding plumage, which is what we see in Australia, because they don't breed here, they they're sort of brown and speckly, and they're sort of mud-coloured, and, mm-hmm. and they camouflage very well for the mud flats they live on. In their breeding plumage, they molt into all these beautiful kind of brick red and black and grey and sort of gold and yellow, really striking plumage. This plumage and this colour pattern is actually incredible camouflage. This bird yeah. looks so different between one country to the next. There must be people in Siberia that go, oh, we've got this great bird, it's really colourful, it's really fat. <laughs> and the guys in Australia <laughs> going, we've got this really skinny, brown, mud-coloured bird. It's really buggered. Yeah. Yeah. They're two yeah. different species. <laughs> the colourful shags a lot as well. <laughs> so oh, getting back to this migration. Yeah, yeah. migration. Thanks, Brad. Brad, lo- Brad likes hearing the sound of his own voice. <laughs> So basically, you, you the they prep themselves up for this flight. They're mm-hmm. up in the air. They get up to three thousand meters. Get into a slipstream. How long are they going for in one go before they have to stop and have a break? In Australia, most of the monkey shorebirds before they migrate will congregate in a place called Roebuck Bay, which is um, just south of Broome, and then they will migrate from there up to the Yellow Sea between China and Korea, um, which is the main sort of stopover point. It's a kind of bottleneck on the migration route. Whoa, 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 whoa. So they, they go from Broome to China. 
and one go. Yeah, with, with, without stopping. And so, how long would that? How long would that trip to China? Corners don't even fly that route. Well, okay. To, to give you an, to give you a there's, a there's a really good example of how quickly these birds fly, which is um, from a species called a bar-tailed godwit, which is one of the larger mighty shorebirds. It's a bit smaller than eastern curlew. So an eastern curlew is about the size of a chicken. The bar-tailed godwit is a bit smaller, but it's still fairly large. There was one famous bar-tailed godwit um, called or codenamed E1, I think, or E7. I can't remember. And she was satellite tracked flying from the breeding grounds in Siberia to New Zealand in a big arc over the ocean. So not even in a straight line, a big arc over the ocean. And and they're not they're not water birds, so they can't swim. So it was eleven thousand kilometers and she did that in nine days. What? No, 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 Harry, no, 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 let's back this up. When you say you're not a water bird, you can't land on the water, otherwise you sink. Yeah, that's right. Okay. So they just fly constantly. They and not nine, nine days. Time. Nine days of flapping yep. your wings. Nine days yep. and you've got 11,000 kilometres. Yep. That, so they must have had a tailwind, Harry. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> this is, you know. Geez, Richard Brands would like to know who this bird is. I mean, he's trying to go to space. Him and Elon. You can get a bird up in the air for nine days. 11,000 yeah, kilometres. They're, they're pretty extraordinary birds and it doesn't, doesn't really make sense to think about them. Um, and we know that you know, they can memorise landmarks. We know that they can sense somehow the Earth's magnetic fields, how they perceive the magnetic fields, whether they see them or some other way, we're not sure, but they can use that to align themselves and to navigate. Just in case I haven't quite you know, blown your mind enough with, with facts about the lifestyle of these birds, they'll only be up in the breeding grounds for six weeks. So they do this epic migration and they're only there for six weeks. They get there, the males do this display flight, so they fly 15 metres up and call in the whole time because obviously they haven't been quite impressive enough just, you know, flying up there for thousands of kilometres. They've got to do displays as well. Hang on, hang on, hang on. They fly 10,000 kilometres of Siberia and they don't yeah. rest. They go, well, time to put the moves on and... Uh, well, they've been thinking about <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Wow. And then they get down to they get down to breeding. Um, the the eggs the eggs hatch. That is then, the ultimate endurance yeah. athlete. I'm, I'm <laughs> oh, um, great. <laughs> Brad, what are you thinking about now? What's it, <laughs> Barley Hope 2020. <laughs> I'm just thinking about all the endurance events that I've I've done and we will do in in December. You know, we'll kill ourselves, cross the finish line, we'll die. These guys, <laughs> these guys cross the finish line and then go out the town. <laughs> On the, on the hey, prowl. We're go- well, we're not going out in the prowl, but we're going out in the town. <laughs> oh, mate, this is – sorry. This yeah, is just so, so we, were, we were talking about the migration. So we go from Broome to China slash Korea, which yep. seems incredible. Yeah, they, yeah. So with their – Well, what's, what, what's the and – then, and, then and then they'll feed up and, and replenish their fat stocks in, in the Yellow Sea. Um, and in a mud flat area, around the, last, there, yeah. the last few thousand kilometers up to Siberia, wow. where they'll get where they'll get down to business, and then they'll they'll come back. Have eggs, the, the chicks will will hatch. The chicks are what's called precocial, um, so that means basically like no, precocious. But basically, they can run around and feed themselves from the moment they hatch. Um, so, so, so that, that migration, of- that migration distance is that what's what what is it? Is it about ten thousand kilometers? Is that correct? Yeah, so they do about a twenty thousand kilometre round trip wow. every every year. Every year. And, um, and what about the new yeah. chicks? Do they? How long do they have before Dad goes? Come on, buddy, we're going for a wee walk, or we or sorry, <laughs> well, we well, fly. Well, this is so. This is the really extraordinary thing. The parents 
don't really do much by raising the chicks. So the chicks can look after themselves and feed themselves and run around pretty much from the moment they hatch. The parents sort of cast an eye over the chicks. Apparently the male hangs around maybe for a day or two. Um, and then the, the parents take off and fly back down south. The chicks are then basically raised themselves. They grow incredibly quickly. They fledge into their flight feathers incredibly quickly and then do their first long-distance migration from Siberia to Australia unguided by parents at only six weeks of old. Oh, my goodness. Mate, this, these birds, well, honestly, like, are you six weeks old? Hey, mum and dad have buggered off to Aussie. We've got to feed ourselves <laughs> and get strong enough to get there. Where are we going? I don't know. Come on, Harry. <laughs> Come on, is this a fictional or non-fiction book? <laughs> this is... Well, you know, as they say, you know, real life is stranger than fiction. <laughs> so 10,000Ks, how long does it typically take to get from Siberia to Australia? Generally speaking, the north of migration to the breeding grounds is very quick because they're racing against time. They're not keen to mm. get it on. Um, and south of migration <laughs> to Australia, where they're going to spend months and months, is fairly leisurely. So they'll sort of usually take a few weeks. Oh. Or no island hopping their way down, down, down. <laughs> the, the dawdle. <laughs> yeah. Oh wow! And sorry, on the way back, how long would it take to, a there, couple of to weeks. there? No, no, a couple of weeks. I was a couple of weeks on the way back to Siberia. Yeah, no, I'm the, no. oh, sorry, on the way on the way back um, Siberia down from to, to, the, to the breeding grounds. Um, well, with with the stopover in in the Yellow Sea, that'll probably take. Um, I guess I guess a couple of weeks with your layover, refuel and <laughs> stuff. The, the actual flying time is probably about a week. This obviously is an incredible bird, but it's obviously um, facing some, I guess, some serious threats. So the the population of the eastern curlew, for example, uh, Harry, how is that sitting? Is it is it a well populated sort of species, or is it sort of endangered? Um, or well, it's so it was listed in Australia as critically endangered in two thousand and sixteen. There's believed to be about twenty to thirty thousand left in in the world, um, which you know, might sound like a fairly decent number, but going to a big football game, there'll be more people in that stadium than there are eastern curlews in the entire world. Um, wow. More tellingly, the population has has crashed, um, has gone down 80%, that's 80 to 0, 80% in the last 30 years. Oh, wow. And that trend is repeated for many shorebird species, many multi shorebird species, so the population decline of many multi shorebird species is as much as 8% a year of the population's dying. Oh, wow. And it's still decreasing. Yeah, um, and that's pretty much entirely due to habitat destruction. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. 
And so what does um, that mean? So what, obviously the, these shoreboards rely very heavily on the mudflat environments. So they're Yeah, so they, they feed in their non-breeding grounds and in their, on their migration routes. So when they go out to the Yellow Sea, they rely very heavily on intertidal mudflats is where most, of, most species find pretty much all their food. Intertidal mudflats are incredibly rich ecosystems. Beneath the surface of the mud, there's millions of invertebrates of all kinds. So there's crabs, snails, clams, small tiny board. shrimps. Mm. Um, <laughs> something like 80% of the intertidal mudflats in the Yellow Sea have now been now been destroyed, which has obviously had a huge impact on, on multi-shorebird species in our in our flyway. Um, in Australia, we're not doing much better, to be honest. You'll, and so, obviously... In Brisbane, you'll, you'll probably be familiar with the with the Toondah Harbour yeah, issue. There's yeah. a place called Toondah Harbour, just about 35 kilometres east of Brisbane, which is a Ramsar-listed wetland. Um, so it's you know, listed under the Ramsar tree that Australia was actually one of the first signatories to back in mm. the 1970s. So it's nominally protected, recognised as critical habitat for eastern curlews, which, as I said, are listed federally as critically endangered. And yet, despite that... It's currently the subject of a development proposal to turn the whole area, which is not very big, into a marina and three and a half thousand apartments. Mm. And obviously, when um, when these mud flaps mud flats get destroyed and removed and built up by and essentially, a, for example, a harbour development goes in there, mm-hmm. the the seabirds essentially just need somewhere else to go. And and if they can't find anywhere else to go, they essentially die. So and obviously, if if they're sort of if these mud flats are used as sort of stopping points along the way on these incredible journeys. Essentially, they're they're being t- they're, like they're, it's an incredible endurance event, incredible endurance uh, feat to travel from Australia to Siberia already. But if you lose these stopping points, you're putting enormous yeah. stress on an, an already enormously stressed species because it basically has to yeah, keep exactly. flying. Exactly, we know that each individual shorebird goes to the same patch of, of coast year after year after year, and they're living on a knife edge in terms of their, their metabolism because of these long-distance migrations. When they land, they land where they know there's going to be food, and they mm-hmm. can't risk going and, and searching all up and down the coast hoping to find another patch of food. So if the habitat that they're flying towards is one year destroyed, then that's it. Um, there's an infamous development in South Korea um, in an estuary called the Salmon Gum Estuary, which was the single most important migratory shorebird site in the entire Yellow Sea. About 10 years ago, the Korean government finished building the world's longest seawall, which is 34.5 kilometres long, which pretty much in one fell swoop sealed off this entire huge estuary. Mm. Um, the estuary was used by many species of shorebird, but in particular, it was a critical site for a species called the great knot, which is one of the sort of medium-sized shorebirds. The great knot, prior to the construction of this salmon gum seawall, which sealed off the tides and sealed off the estuary, prior to that, the great knot was listed internationally as of least concern. It was doing fine. With just that one development, the great knot went from least concern to critically endangered. Wow. That's because so many of them died. And, and the Korean government was warned that this would happen. The Korean government was warned by shorebird researchers that look, this is going to be a disaster. And the government said, no, they're birds. They could just go somewhere else. They could wow. fly somewhere else. They didn't. <laughs> and and so how, just from a layman's perspective, how can how can that be stopped? Like obviously we have these Ramsar treaties and sort of international agreements to, I, I thought, appropriately protect the habitat of these migratory birds, but it just isn't enough. Is that correct? 
Yeah, well, I mean, the, in, the enforcement, I mean, I'm, I don't want to claim to be any kind of an expert in uh, the enforcement of international treaties, but it seems like Ramsar is not being enforced. We know with the case of, of Toonda Harbour that, that the Department of Environment advised the um, Federal Environment Minister um, that the development was clearly unacceptable. He went ahead with it. Um, with approving the or pushing the the development up the approval chain anyway, there's a lot of freedom of information stuff that came out about a year ago, which was quite eye-opening about this. And at the end of the day, we have to learn to love habitats and ecosystems that we don't really love. I mean, but uh, but I guess the big uh, another thing of, is, uh, I guess people need to know some well, need to know about these areas, but before they can actually love them. And honestly, I think a lot of people would look at a mudflat and go, "Oh, it looks just like a dirty area," you know. And obviously, obviously, not all species get to have a book written about them. Let's face it. But uh, the eastern uh, curlew is, is is one that does have a book, and it's a really uh, to be honest, awesome book. But what, how do we actually get the stories out there, like to sort of share to create greater awareness around, I, I guess, the issues faced by these migratory birds and other species, and also the pressures that they actually face? I Man, how can we how can we get that sort of message out there in the big bad world more effectively, and then subsequently drive greater protection for these mudflat areas? Um, I think it comes down to talking and talking and talking and, and telling the story again and again. One of the really heartening things about writing and researching the, the book is even though so much of the story about shorebirds and their plight was you know, incredibly bleak, one of the really heartening things was coming across again and again people who, whether they're artists or scientists or volunteers or, or whatever, who are just incredibly passionate and enthusiastic about shorebirds and about the eastern curlew and about getting their story out there and, and informing people. And I've found that when I, when I do talks you know, all over the place in the last year to, to talk about the book, to talk about shorebirds more generally, people generally don't know about these birds because they're a fairly obscure group of birds. But once they do know about them, they're just captivated and just awestruck by them. And then they go and tell their friends about them and their friends you know, go and tell other people. So, What about David Edinburgh? Have you, have you rung him and said, hey, mate, <laughs> can we do uh, just a little segment on, on, on this one? Actually, a few years ago, BirdLife Australia got um, John Clark and Brian Dorr to do a whole series of skits all about Milky Shorebirds, and they're all on YouTube, so they're, they're very entertaining. And of course, so that, that got that got word out about them quite well, and those um, those videos still get circulated a fair bit. The classic. We'll put them in our um in our <laughs> yeah, bio. in our show notes. Yeah, 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 yeah sure. Yeah. So. Okay, we're talking about mudflats. So what about the human impact? What about, you know, like we, we do a lot of work with uh, marine pollution. We know where the source of the marine pollution is coming from. You know, what impact are humans' pollution and, and, and what we're doing to the planet? Um, forget about development for a sec, Harry. Uh, what, 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 what do yeah. you see? What do you know? Um, you know pollution is, is the other side of you know, habitat destruction for, for mudflats. The reason that, that intertidal mudflats exist um, in most places, and particularly in the Yellow Sea, is because the the sediment, the mud, is being deposited from from rivers that flow into the sea, and over millennia deposit huge amounts of, of mud. And of course, we all know about about river pollution and how that flows into the sea. So mudflat habitats have been are often being polluted by by inflow of pollutants from the rivers that feed them. I'm not that familiar right. with sort of the Chinese and Korean mudflats. Certainly, uh, you'd expect you know it's obviously flow mud and and flow coming from the upstream catchment. And obviously, when you change the land use of that catchment, you you change the sort of pollutant loads coming into those mudflat areas. But I would expect with yeah. increased agriculture, you'd yeah. probably see a lot more pesticides and herbicides flowing into those mudflat areas. And obviously, a big one that we see time and time again is just plastics because these birds 
as a phenon invertebrates, I'd imagine that pesticide build-up in, you know, in in the sediment, in the mud sediment that the invertebrates are living in would, would probably be, be an issue, I would mm. imagine. The biggest thing is um, obviously the habitat getting taken away, but then you're seeing a decline in the health of the habitat due to, I guess, runoff into the mud flaps. Are they the two biggest um, points of, of, of endangerment of these birds? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and then you know, the, the old climate change is also having effect on them, and it comes down to why they breed in the Arctic in the first place. Which yeah, isn't really yeah, touched yeah, on. Yeah, um, yeah. We, we tend to think of the Arctic as you know, very bleak and ice-bound and inhospitable, but which it is most of the time, or increasingly less. But for six weeks or a couple of months in the middle of the year, it's an incredibly productive ecosystem. Everything's going gangbusters. There's a brief window in, in which to, to grow and reproduce. So all the plants are shooting out berries, new leaves, all the animals are breeding. In particular, in, in a perfectly working Arctic um, environment, the ice and snow melts, forms huge meltwater swamps or wetlands on top of the permafrost. That creates fantastic breeding conditions for mosquitoes, and mosquitoes breed and hatch in their billions, which is why the Arctic and subarctic regions are such great places for birds to breed for a very brief period of time. And that's why the, the young ones can grow so quickly because feeding themselves is mostly involved. It's just a matter of opening their, their mouths and a feast of, of mosquitoes flies in. Um, so they're not just going to Siberia for the r- r- raging nightlife and there's very good reasons to, to breed in Siberia, but... Of course, as we know, with climate change, the polar regions are warming faster than any other parts of the world. The Arctic summer now starts, I think it's three weeks earlier than it did in, in the 1980s. Insects, of course, are in very short, very ephemeral lives. Now, by the time shorebirds get up there, the insect peak has already been and gone. The insects have bred before the shorebirds have arrived now, and the populations have started crashing. There's not as much to eat. There was a study on a species called the red knot, I think it was, um, a few years ago, that found that because of this change in the in the um, in the timing of everything in the Arctic, the red knots are now arriving too late after the insect peak has been and gone. It means that their young ones don't have as much food to to eat when they when they're growing, and so they grow smaller. Their beaks grow shorter than they would normally, which means when they do eventually wow. manage to get enough energy and migrate down to the Yellow Sea, where they, they've evolved a very particular beak length of just a few centimetres to feed on clams that are exactly just a few centimetres below mud. Now they can't reach them. Now they have to rely on feeding on the roots of plants instead, which are obviously incredibly much, much less nutritious than clams. So that means that they have to feed for longer. That delays their migration and stunts their growth further. Has all these knock-on effects. Um, and that's I the thing about the obviously when you're talking about a, a such a critically endangered species, which is obviously very sensitive and obviously travels over such literally around the planet. Any sort of yeah. slight changes in the climate, whether it be increased temperature, change in the seasons, increased severity and frequency of sort of extreme weather patterns like you know uh, wind, rain, etc. No Any of those, food, no food, food, pollution in the sort of mudflats, uh, a lack of sort of stopping, uh, like uh, uh, mudflats to sort of go along the way. Running out of places to stop, exactly. Yeah, like, like, that just puts so much more pressure on an already uh, highly stressed Well, that's, 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 that's a good point. Can we replicate mudflats elsewhere? 
you know, can we say, hey, birds, come in here. No, no, you're not here. Go over there. We're just up the road. Well, with with the, um, the salmon gum estuary development that I mentioned earlier, one thing that BirdLife International has done is they, they've actually done some airdrops of food wow. onto on where the knots are. But, um, I mean, that's obviously not really a very sustainable long-term solution unless, we, unless we're going to do airdrops every year for the rest of time as long as either us or these birds are around. <laughs> But, but if we're developing these mudflat areas, say Timber Harbour, for example, and I know um, the developers talking about creating buffer zones and sort of they often talk about offsets, for example, can we actually create equivalent or better habitats uh, for the mudflat environments which might be being developed? Good question. Um, possibly. I know not so much for the feeding areas. I know that there's been some successful developments, for instance, up in Darwin Harbour, I think, um, of of high tide roosting places, which is the other other side of the coin, as well as feeding grounds. These birds also need safe places to to roost when the when the tide covers up the mudflats. And I know there have been some successful developments and creations of artificial high, high tide roosts, which are, have been very you know, popularly used by the birds. So, yeah, there is some possibility of creating some artificial habitat. As far as artificial feeding grounds go, I'm not actually sure, to be honest. What needs to change, though? What what actually does need to change to provide a greater sec- level of security for well, the future of the these first, eastern curlews? I mean, the first thing we need to do is we need to stop developing intertidal mudflats. We need to save everything we have left, really. I mean, we know where the important sites are because these birds have been very heavily studied. Their, their migrations and their movements have been very heavily studied. When now we need to actually get serious about conserving the habitat that we've got left. Those areas that we do know are very important, they've already been classified and designated as Ramsar wetland areas? Many of them, not all of them, but okay. many of them have. As we've seen with Tunda, that doesn't necessarily guarantee protection. Mm. And and certainly the, the focus for a long time on conservation of migratory shorebird habitat in our in our flyway, in the East Asian Australasian flyway, the focus for a long time has been very heavily on the Yellow Sea because it's such a crucial stopover point and now the conservation focus has switched very quickly to Australia because even though the birds don't breed here, they spend more time in Australia than they do in any single other country. Fortunately, there are a lot of people who are doing a lot of fantastic work all around the world in actually solving these issues, whether it's captive breeding of endangered species, shorebird species or whether it's Know, raising awareness or lobbying governments or firms or, or whatever. So you know, people in Australia and people all over the world and organisations all over the world are doing a lot of work to raise uh, to raise awareness. Now, individual people can donate to organisations like BirdLife Australia who have a dedicated shorebird conservation program. People can volunteer to help out with, with shorebird surveys which help us understand what the population dynamics are and whether the birds are stabilising or keeping on going down. You know, people can Link up with their if they're if they're near the coast, they can link up with their local shorebird surveying group and go and help out. And even if it's just you know, lugging gear out, it all it all contributes. It all helps. Um, or if you find yourself getting excited about shorebirds, just go and tell everyone you know about them. Um, raise awareness. Um, you should have a shorebird party. <laughs> yeah, or you know, even even things that might seem really tiny, like educating your friends not to walk their dogs on important shorebird beaches um, and to steer clear of those beaches. Every wing beat that a shorebird takes to escape from a perceived threat, such as a dog, is a wing beat that's robbed energy-wise, from the upcoming migration. Yeah. So yeah. these birds are very susceptible to disturbance. So even something as simple as not walking your dog through a shorebird area or telling other people not to walk their dog through a shorebird area can have very real, tangible 
um, effect on on the future of these birds. And I guess the big thing about, I guess, driving change and driving action is uh, first up, people need to be aware of an issue. And I think that's one of the great best things I think your book has done is actually create an awareness around this issue. And uh, as human species, we love a story and it doesn't get much more of an incredible story than the Eastern Curlew. It is an incredible read. Well, as, as I was about to say... Brad, next time I have to go to a dress-up party as a superhero. I'm going to as the You don't go as a colourful version or the mudflat version? Oh, I'll just, I might do a costume change. <laughs> He's like Cher. <laughs> and with that, Harry, mate, thank you so much for coming on uh, our little podcast. It's just fascinating. We need more people like you out there that, you know, dream, obviously, of, you know, one day – um, finding this bird and, and, and no, but you know, it's passion. Oh, look, and without yeah. people with that is as passionate as, as you are, we wouldn't hear these wonderful stories. So, mate, thank you so much for coming on. We'll put, we'll put some stuff in the, in, in the notes of this podcast. So, any uh, local foundations where you can go out and, and obviously donate your time, as you've, you've said. But, mate, from me to you, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's been great. And all I'd suggest is, look, if you're interested, if this is conversation has sparked interest in the, in the Eastern Curlew, go out and uh, get uh, Harry's uh, book, The Eastern Curlew, available at all good bookshops, I'm sure. But Harry, again, yeah, and, and just echo Jeremy's sentiments, thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on a great book, and it's been a, a really incredible chat. Thanks. Thanks very much. It's been great. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au. Thank you.